0: If you have a Bible, if you could please turn to Psalm 23. We're in this psalm for the second straight week. And as was mentioned last week, the psalms were originally poems set to music. They were sung by the, the Israelites for hundreds of years. And it's a real privilege to sing this psalm this morning, wasn't it, to that beautiful arrangement I'm going to be reading uh, the whole psalm, just six, just, just six verses. They're on your screen uh, in front of you. This is the Word of God, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Heavenly Father, you are God exalted above all things, even now ruling from heaven, nothing happening apart from your knowledge and your will, and Lord, you are God on our best days. You are God when everything seems to be working out, when we are on the mountaintops, and you are God when we are in the valleys. And nothing seems to be working out. And all we see around us is darkness and despair. Even there, you are with us. We pray that you would comfort and speak to our hearts this morning through your word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, apply to us, Lord. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen life in the valley. Louis Zamperini was at the bottom. He was back in America after uh, spending time adrift at sea and then for years as a POW. Louis Zamperini was a World War II veteran and POW. And many of you know that name because last year there was a movie that came out called Unbroken. It was made by Angelina Jolie, and uh, she found out about his life. She read the book by Lauren Hillebrand, which I highly recommend, and she made the movie. And Louis was back in America, and he was recently married, and he was considered a war hero. But inwardly, Louis Zamperini was a complete train wreck. After his, uh, a little background on him, after his B-24 bomber was shot down over the Pacific, he had miraculously survived for 47 days in the open sea with hardly anything to eat. He lived by, um, he was able to kill two albatross birds, and that, that was his food for roughly 47 days. He basically had no water. The sun was beating down on him every day, and uh, within an inch of his life, he was discovered, and he was discovered by the Japanese, who immediately put him uh, in a prisoner prisoner of war camp that he spent um, many, many days in, and he was repeatedly tortured mentally, physically by a sadistic prison guard who had the nickname of the Bird. Uh, all this is in the movie. Um, and I want to read a paragraph uh, from Lauren Hillebrand's book by the same title, Unbroken. Uh, This is a combination of a number of sentences from the end of the book. Hillebrand writes this about Louis Zamperini back in America uh, after he had been, after the Allies won the war. Louis was wrecked. By day, he couldn't stop thinking about the bird. That was the guard that tormented him. He regularly woke up screaming, soaked in sweat. He was afraid to sleep. If he got drunk enough, he could drown out the war for a time. He soon began drinking so much that he passed out, but he welcomed it. Passing out saved him from having to go to bed and wait for the monster. Rage, wild, random, impossible to quell, began to consume him. He became determined to kill the bird. God, Louis believed, was toying with him. When he heard preaching on the radio, Louis angrily turned it off he forbade his wife, Cynthia, from going to church. That's just a little picture of the demons this man wrestled with when he came back from war. And if there was ever a person who could resonate with what the psalmist says in Psalm eighty-eight, eighteen, darkness is my closest friend, it was Louis Zamperini. He was down in the valley. Have you ever been down in the valley? Have you ever been in a place of despair, of depression, of struggle, of weakness? Some of you here this morning, you're in the valley right now. And I prayed for you this morning that God would speak His comfort and His love to your heart. Some of you can relate to being in the valley. Your experience, of course, isn't like Louis Zamperini, but you've had your own losses. You've had your own struggles. You've had your own places of darkness and despair, and you can relate Others of you, you would say, you know, to be honest, Pastor, I've, I've never been in the valley. I've had a, a lot of potholes along the way. But you know what? I can praise God. I've never, I don't know if I've, I can say I've been in the valley. And to you, I would say that you can praise God for that, but eventually you will be in the valley. You you can only live, you only have to live life on this earth so long before you encounter hard things, suffering, difficulty, pain. And so if you've never been in the valley before, one day you will be. And here's what I know. I don't know what your valley will be like. Every valley for every person is going to be unique in many different ways. And yet every valley in some other ways is going to be the same because we're all human. And I don't know what your terrain will look like. I don't know how deep your valley will go or how many times you may go into it. But as pilgrims living in a foreign land, on our way to glory, at various points we will find ourselves in the valley. You will find yourself in a valley, in a place of deep struggle. Last week we looked at the first three verses of this psalm. This week we're going to look at verses 4 to 6. And last week was learning to be a sheep. We, we talked about how God is our shepherd and how um, he calls us sheep, and that's really something we can embrace when we see what that means. And it's easy to read this psalm, and, and because we're so familiar with it, to just be caught up in its beauty. This psalm can seem like a cool glass of water when we need a little refreshment. But while Psalm 23 is certainly beautiful, this is a psalm with backbone. Psalm 23 is no wilting flower. This is a psalm that you can go to in your darkest time and find God's love, find his kindness. Derek Kidner says this about the psalm. You have the quote on your screens. Its peace is not escape. Its contentment is not complacency. There is a readiness to face deep darkness and imminent attack. And the climax reveals a love which homes toward no material goal but the Lord himself. Today, we're going to dig into that. We're going to look at this psalm, verses 4 to 6, and dig into the deep darkness and imminent attack, which is a part of every Christian's experience at one time or another. And we're going to see that in our dark places, God reveals ourselves, our needs, and most of all, he reveals himself to us. Just three points this morning. First of all, our fears. We see this in verse 4 when we're down in the valley. Second of all, His presence. Uh, we see that second part of verses 4 and verse 5, and finally, His promise, which we see in verse 6. First of all, our fears. Psalm 23 is probably the, the most well-known psalm, uh, broadly speaking, in America, uh, of any psalm in the Bible. And verse 4 of Psalm 23 is probably the most famous verse of the most famous psalm of the Bible, Who hasn't heard these words? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And I want to put up two different translations for you um, to see different ways uh, that, that translators have translated this verse. The New Living says this, When I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. The New Jerusalem Bible says, Even were I to walk in a ravine as dark as death, I should fear no danger, for you are at my side. Your staff and your crook are there to soothe me. Why the differences in the translation? The reason is, is because the Hebrew word that we translate death, in the valley of the shadow of death, can also mean darkness. It's, a, it's found about 20 times in the Old Testament. Most of the time it means darkness, but sometimes it means death. And that's why I like how the New Jerusalem Bible combines both of these meanings to give us this picture. Even were I to walk in a ravine as dark as death. What's the image the um, psalmist is giving us? The psalmist is giving us this image of a shepherd is leading his sheep through a dark ravine. Imagine high cliffs on either side of the trail, and it's dark and it's uncertain, and the shepherd is wondering, hey, um, something could happen right now. A predator could come out. Uh, robbers could come out at any moment. Uh, many of you, I would guess, have seen The Lord of the Rings. And uh, you, you know the story. There's Frodo. He's got the ring. He's with his buddy, Samwise Ganji. And they're taking it to Mordor to destroy the ring. And there's so many images in those movies of, of they're winding through these dark and perilous paths. And, of course, who's lurking But Gollum, you know, my precious, you know, he's doing that deal. And that's kind of, ooh, you know, it's kind of creepy. And um, we're wondering, is uh, Frodo going to be okay? And that's kind of the image that we should get as we read how the psalmist is giving us this picture. Imagine a scenario where there is danger, there is darkness, there is uncertainty, and you are overcome with fear when the Desch family goes on a trip, I usually have three goals for the road trip. Um, Number one is that we don't stop at McDonald's. Uh, But as we know, the interstate is like a haven for the golden arches, and they're always beckoning you. And uh, you're trying to fit it in that window for meals and nap times and all that stuff. And I'm always just thinking, Lord um, get me through this valley to the promised land of a Chick-fil-A. I just want to see one right off the interstate. And you got to go, you start you got to go south to get there. Um, and sometimes, uh, we have to stop in the valley and we don't make it. Um, that's goal number one. Goal number two is to limit the amount of, you know, iPad time for the kids. And goal number three is to not stop to use the bathroom 20 minutes after we just stopped to use the bathroom. Um, The Desch family has varying degrees of success with those goals, but if I think about it, the challenges that I face on a long road trip, they're really not that bad. I mean, if these are the the challenges I'm dealing with, it's really not that much to complain about, but if you were traveling in ancient times, there were much more real dangers Uh, there was no highway patrol looking out for you. The further you you were away from a city, the more vulnerable you were. If a group of strong guys came upon you with clubs and knives and swords and spears, uh, there was no calling 911. You pretty much said, am I going to fight or am I going to run? The story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, which I know that we're all familiar with, would have been a very easy story for the original audience to hear. You know the story of the Good Samaritan? He's walking along the road, he gets mugged, he's left for dead. That was not that uncommon in the ancient world. They didn't have the safety net, the, the type of uh, protections that we have today. David is saying, even when I'm in a dark place, even when I'm fearful of, of whatever may happen to me, I will fear no evil Because God is with me, even in the darkest place, even in the the valley of the shadow of death. I mentioned last week, I said, the presence of God is the ultimate de-stressor for the Christian. I mentioned there's other de-stressors, there's other things that we do to to let go of some stress in our lives, and they're good things. But God, His presence, is the ultimate de-stressor. And likewise, the presence of God is the ultimate source of peace when we're fearful. What happens when we are in difficulty? What happens when we are struggling, when we're in the valley? Well, when we're in the valley, when we're in difficulty, our deepest fears are exposed. There's no hiding who you are and who I am When we are truly in the valley. It's just the same as when you put a person under pressure. If you put any person under enough pressure, who they really are will come out, right? Um, You know that. You put a person under pressure, the the guises, the defenses, uh, the posturing, all that goes away. When there's enough pressure under a person, you see who they truly are. So in the valley, our deepest fears are revealed. The things that we're truly fearful of the things that we truly are concerned about we learn more about ourselves in the valley even though it's extremely difficult than we do about ourselves in the good times and in the valley uh, of the shadow of death your inner being my inner being the stuff that really makes us who we are it comes out it's revealed we come face to face with our fears so how do we face our fears Well, here's one approach to facing your fears. One approach to facing your fears is the um, I don't care. I'm going to just sort of ignore anything. I'm just going to live my life each day at a time. I call this the Lego movie strategy, everything is awesome. Um, You know, sort of a, uh, you know what? I'm just going to live my life. I'm not going to be worried about anything. I'm going to try to be a good person. I'm going to have as much fun as I can in the process. I'm just going to kind of turn my head Uh, when, when i hear about something bad maybe offer some easy little platitudes to somebody hurting but enter into their grief sit with them mourn with them i don't know about that this approach is really a form of hiding sticking our heads in the sand we can try to avoid suffering and pain but we can only do it so long and certainly if we love and care for others then this approach isn't going to work because we got to walk alongside people who are hurting. That's one approach to, to our fears. Another one, and this is, the approach that I, this is the approach that describes me, and I imagine it describes many more of us than the first one, is an approach of, um, well, when I come to my fears, I'll do all the research. I will have all the knowledge I possibly can about every possible bad thing that could ever happen to me or my children. I will plan for every contingency. I will have a, a plan to work out every struggle that comes along, and therefore, whatever's going to uh, come my way, I'm going to be prepared for on some level. Preparation's not bad, of course, but the danger of this approach is that it, c- it can become control. We can try to play God, because, of course, we know we can't worry about every contingency. We can't plan for every possibility in life. We have to live life by faith. And trust God. And of course, neither one of these approaches will get us through every valley, especially the darkest valley, which is death itself. Death, of course, is the ultimate fear. And this image of death casting a shadow is appropriate because if you think about death, we, we see it, but we don't see what lies beyond it. We see death, but we see the reality of it, but we wonder what's, what's beyond the grave, Death can easily be the ultimate fear. It is the ultimate enemy. And death had a pretty spotless track record until 2,000 years ago when the Lord Jesus Christ walked out of a tomb and defeated death and defeated sin and showed us that, that death is not the ultimate answer. That the resurrection is the proof that even when we, co- we are confronted with this deepest of all fears, death, that death is not the end, but rather that those who belong to Jesus will be resurrected. And that's how Paul can say about death. Death is swallowed up in victory. It's consumed by the victory that we have in Christ. So how do we face our fears? The answer is the second part of verse 4. David says, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's the presence of the shepherd which enables us to face our fears, not to ignore our fears or to downplay our fears or to to try to control our fears, but rather to walk through the valley facing our fears because God is with us. I want to say a word about a shepherd's staff and a shepherd's rod. Every shepherd... Um, in ancient times and even today in, in certain cultures has a rod and a staff. A rod was a an object, a piece of wood, a branch that a shepherd would hand select, carve down, and, and it would be about probably about this in length. Imagine sort of like a short baseball bat. And um, they would keep the rod here on their belt. The purpose of the rod was twofold. First of all, it was defense. That's what you fought the predator with. Uh, you know, you're attacked by uh, a predator Or uh, robbers, this was your defense. And uh, actually in the book that I mentioned last week uh, by a former shepherd who wrote a book on Psalm 23 called The Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, he recounts watching a shepherd one time pull out a rod and kill a cobra in an instant. That's how shepherds are trained. They're ready. They have this weapon to protect themselves and their flock. But the rod is also used for discipline because as we said, sheep can be boneheaded just like us. And when a sheep goes off, sometimes he needs a bonk on the head to say, you're going down a ravine. You're chasing something you shouldn't chase. You need to come back in the flock. A couple other interesting uses of a rod. Shepherd would use a rod to pull back the sheep's wool to look for parasites or cuts or wounds to check on the sheep. They would also use a rod to count the number of sheep that they had to number their flock. The rod was used for protection and for discipline. The staff, on the other hand, was not an instrument for either protection or discipline, but an instrument for comfort. You see, especially at night, when a sheep may not be able to tell one person from another, when a shepherd is walking along with his staff, and the sheep see a man with a staff, they instantly knew, that's my shepherd. He's watching over us. He's protecting us. Uh, today, modern-day shepherds will have a rifle, but either way, it was a, it was a mark of protection, a mark that identified them as, as, the one, as the shepherd who brings them comfort oftentimes with different animals. When a baby animal is born, if a person touches the baby animal, the mother will reject the baby because of the scent that comes from a human hand. So just one um, example of how a shepherd would use his rod to comfort his flock. If a baby lamb became um, disconnected from the mother, the shepherd would use the staff, you know, curved in on the bottom, pick up the lamb, place the lamb at the mother next to the mother so as to not contaminate that lamb and cause the mother to reject it god does the same for us he protects us he disciplines us when we need it he closes down doors that are going to be bad for us even if we don't think they're bad for us lord i don't know why you're not opening up this door everything looks good to me but he sees what we don't see he disciplines us when we need it he leads us to repentance He protects us in a million different ways that we never see. He's with us. Now, verse 5, I I read Psalm 23 for years, and I always thought verse 5 was a strange verse. Listen to verse 5. David says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Isn't that seem a little odd that David says to God, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I would have written a psalm like this. Lord, you wipe my enemies off the map. And then we have a big feast or a big party. Or I would have written something like, Lord, you prepare a table before me when my enemies are 3,000 miles away and I don't have to worry about them. David doesn't say that. He says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What is he getting at? Well, there's a number of potential answers. One is that David is depicting a victory celebration in the presence of captured enemies, it's very possible. But what I, what I think maybe David is saying here is that he is depicting something different. He is depicting cool under pressure. He's depicting confidence in God. Think about what happens when, when we're under pressure. When we have an enemy or a problem that's right around the corner, what do we do? Um, we, don't, we don't set out the nice china. We don't set out the nice tablecloth and prepare a five-course meal. We freak out. We, we go about and oh, I got to do this and I got to do this and we become Mar- like Martha and not like Mary with Jesus outside. I got to look, I got to get, make sure everything's okay. We worry. We may not even take the time. We may forget to eat even. We get the nuclear codes ready and David says this, God is such a shepherd to his people. God can be trusted so much that even when your enemy is at your doorstep, even when that problem you're facing, that struggle you're in is, you just feel like it's right there, God is with you. He can even lay out a feast before you. He can lay out the five-course meal in the presence of your enemy. Why? Because he's a good shepherd who will take care of all of our needs. That's what I think David is communicating through this idea. How can you have that kind of peace in the the midst of your enemies, in the midst of a trial, in the midst of an estrangement with a family member or some other kind of struggle that you're going through right now, in the midst of a cancer diagnosis. You've got to know who you are and whose you are. You're a follower of Jesus. You're a disciple of Christ. You're a child of the Most High God. You belong to Him. He's the shepherd, and He will take care of you And God can grant remarkable courage to his children. As an aside, Christians have been known for the last 2,000 years as people who demonstrate remarkable courage in the face of death. How is that possible? Death's the ultimate enemy. It's because we know where we're going. It's because we know who we belong to. I want to end with this, his promise. I'm going to state the promise of God that I see in Psalm 23 in one simple sentence. What's the promise of God to his people? It's simply this. The promise of God in verse 6 is there is no such thing as a permanent valley of the shadow of death for the Christian. There is no such thing as a valley that does not come to an end in green pastures and quiet waters. Listen to verse 6. Surely goodness and love will follow me. In other words, without a doubt, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See the promise of God? Whatever you're going through, whatever your your struggle is, whatever the valley is, God will lead you out of it and his love and his mercy and his kindness will chase after you. You won't even be able to get away from it because he loves his children and he will carry you all the way home. He's with you right now. He's with all of us right now. His promises are a guarantee and even when we can't see light at the end of the tunnel, he can. I want to end with this. Some of you here today know somebody who's in a valley and they're hurting and and they need to know the love of the shepherd in their life and they need to be reminded of the promises of God. They need someone to come alongside them with God's love and promises. And others of you, you may be in the valley yourself and maybe nobody knows it But it's hard for you to get up each morning because it's a fight. And you wake up in the valley and you're tired of being there. God knows your pain. He is your shepherd who will restore your soul. He will lead you to green pastures. He will lead you to quiet waters. You will dwell in his house forever. He is with you. He is offering to you right now through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the hand of his love. What happened to Louis Zamperini, the man I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon? Louis hit rock bottom. He was an alcoholic, a total drunk, had very little money. His wife, finally, they had a young child. He was actually dangerous to the child. Um, His wife and the young child left the house. She said, I'm divorcing you. His wife was converted, became a Christian after hearing a Billy Graham sermon, and she came back and said, Louie, I'm not going to leave you. And she kept begging him, Louie, I want you to hear this man, Billy Graham, uh, preach. Louis had no interest in God and Christianity. He was getting hammered every night and drowning his sorrows. He was filled with rage. Wouldn't do it, but eventually his wife wore him down. So he went to a Billy Graham sermon service and he heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and he surrendered his life to Christ in saving faith. And he quit smoking and he quit drinking, gave those addictions up. But what I think is even more remarkable is that he let go of all the rage and all the anger and all the resentment that filled his soul. And that was in 1949. And in 1950, he went back to Japan and he forgave the prison guards who had mistreated him. Even though he couldn't find the one man who had really tortured him, but he was ready to forgive that man too. And Louis Zamperini, I believe he died last year. He was age 97. Spent the last, I believe it would be 65 years of his life walking with Jesus. That's what the Good Shepherd does. He leads us to green pastures. He is with us even now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love and your promises and we thank you that you are with us even in the valley remind us of that today we prayed in Jesus name amen